Hi, I'm Rachel and welcome to our second Feeding Curiosity podcast. I am a mum of beautiful twin girls and when they were little, I often struggled to find practical and useful tips to point me in the right direction. That struggle led me to create the Bipidoo coverall to help me keep my sanity at mealtimes, especially with twin girls, my very own mealtime adventurers. It's been great to hear that you've been enjoying our new Feeding Curiosity podcast series, where we'll continue to bring you top tips from leading experts in childhood development and feeding to help you on your mealtime adventures. So sit back and enjoy a cuppa with us as we dive into the wonderful, curious world of babies, their development, and how you can be their biggest cheerleaders at mealtimes. So I am delighted to introduce our guest today, Jenny Best, to the podcast. She is a mum of three, including a severe picky eater, as well as having twin toddlers. Jenny is a baby-led weaning expert and a food and farming enthusiast. She has launched the hugely successful Solid Starts from home during the pandemic, and now it is an award-winning app to help parents. Jenny, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Rachel. Oh, we're, we're so thrilled to have you. Would you mind just telling um, our audience um, and me a little bit more about yourself and why baby feeding is a topic that is so close to your heart? Sure, sure. I mean, how far back do you go, right? Like, I think when I <laughs> think of this journey, it's kind of been coming together for a number of years. But, you know, I think when, when I was first starting solids with my firstborn, Charlie, um, he's six now, but you know, this was six years ago. I didn't, I didn't read any books. I didn't really have any, I didn't follow anyone on Instagram. I didn't, I didn't really do any research. I just thought you go to the store, you get a jar of, you know, <laughs> puree and you bring it home and you spoon feed. Like what's the big deal here? <laughs> and um, yeah, yeah me know, too. That's exactly what I did. <laughs> first, first, firstborn babies. Right. Um, <laughs> and and when I came home and, you know, we, we started feeding, he really didn't care for it. And, you know, not for nothing. It was probably like a green bean, strained green bean and kale, something or other. It probably wasn't that tasty. But what I noticed <laughs> is that he really didn't care for the spoon feeding of it. He was kind of turning his head and leaning away and, you know, was showing all the other signs of readiness for starting solids. So I was really kind of perplexed about it. And, and we love food in my family. Food is really important to our, um, our family culture and to me personally. And so I was really deflated by that experience. It's like, wait, this is supposed to be like, he's splashing and enjoying and, you know, all of that stuff. And it was just, you know, nothing. He really didn't want to eat at all. So a couple of months later, I'm sort of like, ah, how do I get him to eat? I think I need to distract him. I think I need to, you know, let me get my iPhone out. Let's do videos. Let's do a book. Let's put some music on. I started using all these distractions to get him to eat. Right. And I didn't know at the time that that was um, likely aiding the problem in, in terms of the long run. Okay. But um, long story short, you know, I sort of inadvertently raised a really picky eater who um, was spoon fed for way too long. I think we spoon fed him until he was about 15 months old. And in large part, because I didn't know, no one told me how this was supposed to work. Yeah. You know, it's like you go to the pediatrician, you get this like tear off half a page of you know, four tablespoons of rice cereal and two tablespoons of this. 
and it's, it's not hugely helpful. <laughs> um, so yeah. when I was pregnant with the twins, I um, actually vowed to do it differently. I, you know, look, I mean, having it for those of you who have a picky eater, you know, like, you know what I'm talking about. Every meal is stressful. Every meal is loud and filled with tears and, you know, tantrums. And it is definitely the hardest thing that has um, kind of been a constant presence in our life. So when I was pregnant with the twins, I really fell hard into researching alternatives to spoon feeding, um, alternatives to purees generally, and uh, discovered, you know, the baby led weaning uh, philosophy and movement and really felt like that aligned with my parenting, my, my new parenting, my evolved parenting <laughs> philosophy. And, um, of, you know, let's have everyone do the things themselves. <laughs> and uh, it felt really right for me. So, you know, we started baby led weaning with Adie and Max, my, my twin boy and girl, and it was night and day. I can't really begin so to tell you the difference in experience. And mind you, they're different babies. They're not identical twins. They just happen to be born at the same time. Um, so they have different personalities, different likes, different dislikes, but they were just reaching for the food and really enjoying it all, smashing and um, just engaging with it in the most joyful way. I couldn't believe the difference. And it really wow. clicked for me. It was like, aha, okay, I see what's going on here. I think this is probably the next wave of um, of feeding children and I can see the benefits here. So, um, when I, when I was really deep into figuring out how to do baby led weaning, I really wanted someone to tell me it was safe. I wanted someone to tell me my yeah. baby wasn't going to choke. I wanted someone, I wanted my doctor to endorse it. Right. Like I wanted an yeah. expert to say, this is safe. Yeah, this yeah. is good. This is good for your baby. And that was really hard to find. Um, it was also very hard to find uh, trustworthy, expert-approved, evidence-backed information on how to prepare food safely for babies in terms of real food, right? Like, okay, you have a steak, now what? How are we cutting this? Is How is this safe, right? Yeah. So I decided to build a food database for babies and um, it is free. It'll be free forever. It's also an app and um, yeah, you can go there and see how to cut it, whether it's a choking hazard, whether it's a common allergen, um, you know, how to cut it for a six month old baby versus an 18 month old. Cause those are two very different eaters um, as well yeah. as, you know, like a recipe and things like that. So yeah, I built the thing I needed really three years ago. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I mean, and I guess that's what I did with my coverall. I, I needed something to stop me having the mess. So I think we're kindred yeah. spirits in, in the same space. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, honestly, that that is such, um, that story really rings true to me of, you know, being so frustrated with the, the status quo and thinking I've got to change it. And I think, you know, what you've done with Solid Starts and the First Food Database is just exceptional and so, so valuable because that definitely didn't exist when I was there. Uh, with my little ones, it was kind of like start with a banana because it's a banana and that's, you know, mash it and put it in their mouth. So I think, you know, I, I think it's such a fantastic resource. And so I'm so thrilled that you're talking to us today about 
everything to do with with this and i know sort of what we actually invited you to talk on was sort of flavor exploration and obviously with the picky eater that is something i imagine you 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 have first-hand experience with how much of a struggle that could be so um when um we are looking at sort of the beginning of the weaning adventure when are babies ready to begin exploring those flavors yeah you know that's that's a question with an answer that has changed a lot over time, right? And I have to digress for a moment because there's some really interesting history here. If you were okay. a mom in the 1880s, the average age of introducing solid food then was about 11 months of age, 11 months. Yeah. So, you know, you have an age of a baby with teeth, with a pincer grasp, the ability to pick up very yeah. small pieces of food. There's really no need for purees or spoon feeding at that time. Fast forward to about 1920, 1930, which is when baby food as we know it, a commercial puree in a jar or pouch at the, at the store was invented. And so babies started solids a bit earlier. There was also massive, massive campaigns to get babies starting solids earlier because, you know, um, well, let's just, let's just say it as it is. You make more money, the longer, the longer the family's on your product, right? So what you see over time, yeah. and I'll answer your question in a second, is that around 1880, you've got babies starting at 11 months old. By 1950, the average age of starting solids was four weeks old, not months. Oh my goodness. Right. So wow, I did not know that. real like move toward purees, textureless food, spoon feeding, even in a reclined position before a baby can even hold their head up. So fast forward to today and the general consensus around uh, the medical authorities around the world is to start solids around six months of age. That's somewhat of a recent change, but what's really yeah. interesting to me in this, not just the developmental readiness for being able to sit up and hold your body up, which helps prevent choking, holding your head strong, the ability to reach out and grab and bring something to your mouth, whether that's a spoon or a chicken drumstick. Um, yeah. Putting all those developmental milestones aside, at six months of age, purees are not developmentally necessary, nor are they um, uh, even ideal at that point, but we're still continuing essentially the 1950s um, logic of starting babies on food earlier. And because they're younger, they have to have purees, even at now an age when, when the general consensus is to wait until around six months of age. So um, pardon the digression, I had to explain the history mm. because when we think about the readiness for starting solids, we just want baby's core and head mostly to be strong enough but we also want to see an interest in food because if you start too early and baby's like, what's going on here? I don't want this. That can actually create um, a bit of a negative association with eating, which we want to avoid. So I think we're going to start to see a shift in how things are happening, but the six months marker is probably here to stay. Okay. That's so, that's so interesting. I did not know any of that. Um, and it's, I find that quite shocking that people were feeding their babies food at four weeks old. And um, that's just astonishing yeah. to me. So we're definitely, it seems yeah. to me like that's, we're getting more on the right track with sort of recommendations 
today. When you yeah. say things like puree, I, I know I certainly um, gave my children baby rice. Is that something that you yeah. recommend these days, or is that again? It's like no a bit longer 1950s? recommended, and it's it's not that we did anything terrible. You know, I, I did it too, the baby cereal and all of that, and I, I was brought up on baby cereal, and here I am, and I'm okay, right? That's the that's the grandma <laughs> argument. Um, <laughs> yeah. uh, look, what what we're seeing is that. Uh, products made exclusively from rice where they're condensed in that kind of form, like a rice, a concentrated rice cereal, um, where it's like a single grain, um, contain more heavy metals from our soil. And why we have heavy metals in our soil is from decades and decades and decades of pollution that has settled into the soil. So not unlike why there's mercury in fish nowadays, there is um, arsenic in our soil and rice as a plant uh, in particular, just tends to kind of suck that up from the soil and store it in its hull really efficiently, for lack of a better word, as a plant. So yeah. um, the U.S. FDA actually has gone out to recommend against a single grain rice cereal um, and is encouraging wow. parents to explore oatmeal and other cereals that aren't just 100% rice. Um, but as a nutritional matter, the reason rice cereal became so popular was because it's fortified with iron, and iron is critically important for babies and, and young toddlers, and particularly around the six-month age mark, iron, um, so you have stores of iron as a baby. You have stores of iron in your body from being in utero with the mom. So, um, but around six months of age, those, that sort of bank of iron in your body starts to de deplete. And so that's why we want to start solids around six months. It's also why um, iron fortified rice cereal became so popular because pediatricians could rely on that as a source of, as a source of iron. It's the reason rice cereal was commonly consumed and recommended, you know, like back in 1950, for example, is because it's fortified with iron and pediatricians love a food that's fortified with iron. Babies need a lot of iron from around six months of age. And that's an easy kind of affordable economical way to ensure that infants are getting the iron that they need. If you think about the foods that are really high in iron, we're talking red meat, we're talking beans, lentils, those kinds of things. They're not super easy for babies to chew and swallow and get a lot of. So it does make sense to have some sort of iron supplement or food with an iron supplement in the diet. But what I think we're seeing now, and the US FDA actually recently uh, put a press release out about this, is that the focus on the single grain rice as an ingredient in rice cereal is not ideal because of the arsenic that it takes up from uh, the soil. So um, it doesn't matter if you have organic rice cereal or regular rice cereal, it's going to have arsenic just the same. And I, and I hate to really tell folks this, but brown rice actually has more than white rice because the um, arsenic wow. is stored in the, the outer hole of, of uh, you know, brown rice still has the hole in it. So um when it comes to rice cereal, look, there's there's no developmental need for it. There's no nutritional need unless your child is um, iron deficient or your pediatrician has really encouraged you to boost the iron in the diet. Um, what I will say, and this is important and it's often overlooked, is that when babies start solids with bland, textureless foods like that, so if you've ever tasted rice cereal, it's 
really not super good. Yes, I, um, I tried it and it was pretty grim. <laughs> yeah, so there's there's a downside to that experience as well. Like food should be delicious. And if we want our children to grow up as happy eaters, that food needs to taste good. Um, you know, they're never going to eat the green beans if they're, they're disgusting or completely boiled until there's no taste in them, right? So um, the thing I was going to point out is that um, there are studies that have shown over time that uh, babies who are started with very bland, textureless, beige-colored foods like, you know, the rice, the pasta, the plain bread, and so forth, tend to prefer those types of foods later on. And on the you know converse yeah. side of that is that kids who start with really colorful, wide variety of foods tend to eat more vegetables as toddlers and um, a bit less picky. Yeah, that's that's so interesting. And actually, that brings me sort of directly on to my next question, which you kind of began answering, um, which was, is so therefore, why is exploring flavours so important? And, and what, what and, and I guess the, the, the question that goes hand in hand with that, which you addressed earlier, is how important is texture exploration? Um, yeah. And can you just sort of explain to, to, uh, to me and, and to the audience, you know, why yeah. why that really helps it is massively important and it's something that people are starting to talk about but it's not talked about nearly enough here's why when babies start solids with textureless food and it's really about the duration that a baby is eating that way so if you want to do you know infant cereal or purees for the first couple of weeks to ease yourself in by all means go for it do what you need to do but when we start to see nine-month-old babies, 10-month-old babies, 11, 12, and beyond still eating textureless purees, a lot of problems are going to follow. And this is backed in evidence-based research. It's backed, and, and multiple, multiple studies show this. The problem yeah. is, is that to learn how to eat, you actually need chewable food. You have a, uh, a reflex, it's called the phasic bite, reflex in your mouth. Basically, if you ever put your finger on a baby's gums and they kind of munch down on you, that's a reflex. That's a chew reflex. It helps babies learn how to eat. That's only stimulated with resistive chewable food, not a mash from a jar or a puree or mashed potatoes. And if you really think about like if someone dumped applesauce on your tongue, you wouldn't move it to the side to chew it. No, you would just you know, swallow it. Purees and very thin textureless food um, substances are sucked to swallow. So baby is actually only um, continuing to use the dominant skill they have from birth, which is sucking. But we don't want babies sucking down their food for a number of reasons, right? So there is no kind of gradual way to get there, although I think baby food corporations from the last century have tried to convince us that there is, that <laughs> you should start with stage one and then move to stage two and then move to stage three and then you're at junior yeah. foods and all of this. It's all a marketing construct. There is no um, need for stages of food, but also like a chunky mash in a jar that's spoon-fed is also not being moved to the side of the mouth to be chewed. So if you want your child to become a safe eater faster, you actually need to kind of bite the bullet and go for really resistive food. So like when our feeding therapists work with kids with Down syndrome in the hospital or kids are a little bit behind 
in their eating development, they actually go to the extreme of the spectrum in food consistency and work with um, celery and raw carrots, obviously under supervision. Um, and I'm talking six-month-old babies with a huge carrot in their mouth in the hospital to really strengthen their jaws and get that chew reflex going and kind of jumpstart that activity. The longer a child is on textureless food, particularly if that's exclusive, meaning they have no other exposure to finger food or any kind of table food that way, um, the more at risk they are of jaw weakness, um, even uh, tooth eruption issues. So the way the teeth come in tends to be different and dentists and orthodontists are starting to see this. Um, and, and, and obviously picky eating because there are just proven studies and I can, I can tell you myself that the longer you, the longer you spoon feed that textureless puree, the wider the sort of gap you make between what you wanna be eating, the family meal, and what you're serving them, the wider that becomes and the farther you have to leap. So when it is time to transition your toddler or baby to your table food that you wanna be serving and you wanna be eating, yeah. um, that leap is really big and often really hard for those families. So we like to see, um, we like to see families move to finger food if they're spoon feeding by around eight months of age. The studies show that generally if it's after nine months and later, that's when the problems really start um, coming in. So if you wanna spoon feed or do purees or pouches for the first two months of starting solids, totally fine. There are massive advantages to starting with finger food from oral motor skills development, from preventing picky eating to everything I was just talking about and learning how to become a safe eater and chewable food and all those reflexes. But if you wanted to start with purees, yeah. you know, doing so from six to eight months would be fine. And then quickly moving to, to finger food, but don't let anyone convince you that you have to start with stage one, stage two, stage three, stage four, and work your way up to junior food. It is um, uh, simply a, mar a corporate marketing construct to kind of keep the consumer yeah. on the product for, for longer. I think the thing that really sticks in my and this is something I definitely didn't know, and I'm, I'm, I don't know whether you know, um, Jenny, but my former career before I started Bibidoo was I was actually a dentist. Um, and I didn't, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I should know this, but I, I didn't know or understand the, the way that our brains and babies' brains have to learn to chew food and how the, yeah. the oral muscular development is really crucial to being able to do that and how we can support it through yeah. learning to eat. And that for me is just sort of has blown my mind. And you know, it makes sense think, too, right? Like when you think about yeah, it, even as a dentist, yeah, or our, our feeding therapists teach the neurobiology of swallowing to other feeding therapists, occupational therapists, and speech language pathologists in the United States. And one of the things that we try to, one of the sort of aha moments that I always hear is basically that the brain recognizes in the, in the baby's mouth larger pieces of food more easily than it does say like scattered rice on the tongue, which is why you'll see infants often struggle with things like chia seeds or rice or these kind of like quinoa kind of foods that are going to scatter all over the tongue. What we really yeah. want to do in terms of mapping baby's mouth. So let me back up for a second. If you eat a hard boiled egg and it has a little piece of uh, shell left on it and that ends up in your mouth, your brain's gonna spot that, kind of spit it out, move it around, spit it out, without you even really working to think about that. 
For a six-month-old baby, that is not true. The, the brain has to make a mental map of the mouth before it can do something like that. But for us to map the mouth really well, the brain needs a lot of pressure on different points in the mouth, on the gums, on the tongue, to remember where all these pressure points are. And the foods that do that the best, dare I say it, are things like ribs and corn on the cob and chicken drumsticks and really large resistive pieces of food that almost act like teethers. So we're really trying to foster a bit of unlearning, if you will, about how babies um, look, how babies learn to eat and the assumptions that we as parents hold about how infants um, learn to chew and swallow and all of that. Yeah, that's. I mean, that's that's so interesting you've blown my mind again <laughs> um so the other the other sort of question to being adventurous with with flavors um with are there sort of additional i mean are there, are there additional health benefits obviously we're talking about their physical ability to chew being a safe eater which i think is something that is incredibly important um because i know a lot of parents have a lot of anxiety about choking but obviously being a more adventurous eater, are there any other health benefits that sort of you can add to that tick list of, yeah, you know, of why course. this is important? Of course. Look, one of the reasons we put um, in our food database on our website, there's sort of like a summary of each food and it has stars for nutrition from one to five. And that's through the lens of a six month old baby. And typically to get five stars, it's, you know, it has to be high in iron. It has to have some calcium and critical nutrients that that babies need. One of the reasons we did STARS as opposed to say the analysis and the caloric intake and you know, listing all the numbers and how much vitamin C does this have of your daily needs and all of that is because I feel like it's got gotten a little out of hand nutrition. I think that our generation of moms is gonna really kind of maybe goes a little too far in researching the nutrition when really all you really need to remember is that the more colorful your diet is, the more likely it is you're getting the nutrients you need and the wider variety. So I think too, this, this generation, our generation is really hung up on superfoods and too much of a superfood is not a good thing. Let me give you a really good example. In the plant-based community, there's a really popular supplement uh, that's used for like vegetarian mac and cheese or vegan um, you know, things that might require a, a cheese ingredient to have that kind of flavor. It's called nutritional yeast. We love it in our house um, and kind of use it as a sprinkle. Uh, the kids love it, oddly. I'm kind of like, I don't get it, but they, it's yellow. They think it's fun, <laughs> uh, but it has like a slight cheesy kind of taste to it, but it has a massive amount of vitamin B in it, which is great if you're a plant-based baby because that vitamin often comes from meat. Um, and so you need a lot of that, but two sprinkles and you've had like four days worth of, of vitamin B. Oh, wow. So I think we have to be really careful with the assumption that superfoods are good no matter what. And there's, you know, you can have as many superfoods as you want. It's really not the case. We don't want to be loading in protein scoops and supplements and things like that into smoothies uh, for our kids, unless, you know, they have a real dietary need from that. And your pediatrician has said so. Um, otherwise let's, you know, ease up a little bit. Let's stop obsessing a little bit more and just focus on variety. Just try not to eat the same thing every day and try not to eat this. You know, I would say like, try to serve 
try not to serve the same thing to your child like more than twice a week, maybe three times. So if your child loves bananas, really don't do bananas every day. They're not, it's not necessary, but also from a preventing picky eating perspective, at some point your child's going to tire of those bananas. I guarantee it, it will happen. So even the most favorite food can fall out of favor if it's served too often. You won't, you won't believe it because your child will kind of give you these um, indications that they could eat bananas forever and bananas are the best thing, but like one day is gone. And bananas are like off the menu for two years and they're the worst thing that ever happened. So try, yeah. you know, two to three times a week is is sort of a, a sweet spot for, for that. But just focus on variety. We don't need to be analyzing the nutritional content, everything we th- we're feeding our children. It's, it's really not necessary. And I think also if when you over, say you do get a little bit obsessive and you do overanalyze what you're eating, then it becomes, making a meal becomes so much more stressful for you as a parent, yes, I imagine. I mean, I, I, I feel anxious about thinking, oh my God, have I got absolutely. all those things in? But we want if you can focus you on variety. The bar. We want everyone to lower the bar. The bar has gotten so high in parenting. And like, let's also mention that we're pandemic parenting. You can lower the bar. The kids will be all right. Um, but, you know, focus on variety and and your child should be fine. And are there any ways that you can encourage then babies to be more adventurous with the variety? Because sometimes when yes. you know, babies present with something new, you know, how, how do you sort of encourage that in a, you know, really positive way? Without yeah. the stress. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So we tend to see babies and toddlers when it comes to preventing picky eating or raising an adventurous eater, all those things in very separate categories. And the reason is because from about six to 11 months of age, babies are wired to explore orally. So they're going to pick up dad's shoe and put it in their mouth. They're going to teethe on everything they see. And you see that with their toys, right? Constantly reaching and grabbing and bringing things to their mouth around this age. We really want to capitalize on that opportunity and introduce as many foods as possible before their first birthday because at 12 months of age, unfortunately, it goes really far in the other direction. And okay, that's the interesting. toddler, you know, it's actually, they have a fear of new things. It's an actual, it's an actual, was it neophobia um, that happens in toddlerhood. And uh, scientists and uh, experts sort of think that maybe it has something to do way back in the day of, you know, foraging and things like that, of protecting the child from themselves, from not trying the the red berry on the bush, that kind of thing. But whatever it is, or whatever reason, or whatever role it plays, around 12 months of age, and particularly pronounced at 18 months of age, the child is just going to whittle down the number of things that they eat and get very selective. So um, whereas they used to taste everything, all of a sudden they just like 10 things, or they have a real strong preference of white bread versus wheat bread, or, you know, this versus that. Um, So we really want to capitalize on those early months before one age one to get them as familiar with as many foods as possible. Because if you're introducing a new food after 12 months of age, it's just a harder sell to the toddler. We have 50 tricks up our sleeves that we could, you know, (laughs) give you to kind of coax your, your child into tasting a new food. Those are all on our website and our guides. But at the end of the day, nothing can go as 
far as just exposing a wide variety of food early on um, and and more than once, right? Like really get them comfortable with that food. So by the time they reach their first birthday, they know that's broccoli. I've had broccoli before. Broccoli is safe. It's not scary. It can even taste good with butter, right? Um, now, in terms of interesting a child, a baby or a toddler to try a new food or to be more adventurous, there is no better strategy than choices. Babies and toddlers love choices, and so do we, right? Like you kind of go to like to go to a restaurant and have a menu of choices. If someone, if you went to, if you went out to eat and someone just delivered the food to you and you had no say in it, you might not go back to that restaurant again, right? <laughs> um, without having any kind of say in the menu, so you can kind of create some artificial choice without becoming, you know, a four-star chef in your in your house by doing things two ways. So what I mean by that is, let's say you're um, serving salmon for dinner that night. You might kind of mash the salmon into flakes and maybe even stir in a little yogurt or mayonnaise or something like that to create like a salad or like a chicken salad or a salmon salad type dish. Take that same salmon and serve it as a strip, like a two finger size strip uh, as a finger food. That that is actually a choice for the baby. There's two totally different textures, totally different presentations and slightly different tastes. So um, when you can look for how you can serve it two ways or create some kind of choice on the plate. And that'll often uh, be the thing that babies need or toddlers need to, to go ahead and pick up one. That, yeah, I, I really like that as a, as a sort of a strategy. Um, I think that's great. Any other, any other sort of adventurous tips for, for choices? Yes, well, one of our very best tips for babies who are not interested in finger food, so we're talking typically babies who have been spoon-fed for a while and are having trouble leaping over that gap to self-feeding and finger food, is actually to put, to offer the food from your mouth. And I know it sounds kind of gross and weird, but it is like the, the, the hundred dollar ticket in our in our feeding therapy <laughs> world. Um, and so let's say you have a slice of apple and your child just will not pick up that apple. They're not picking up any food. They're not bringing it to their mouth. Um, what you can do is serve it from your mouth and just lean forward and wait for baby to take it. Often babies don't understand, especially if they've been spoon fed, they don't understand that they can or should feed themselves. And so when you put food out in front of them, they're like, what? what's this? What do you want me to do with this? I don't, I don't understand. And so what they need is to see that food goes in the mouth. And that little trick actually shows them that really well. We've never seen a We've never seen that trick not work with a baby in 15 years. So that's one of our, our all-star tricks. In terms of toddlers exploring more vegetables, you know, you want to focus on a really like colorful spread of choices. Never, ever, ever ask your toddler a yes or no question because it will always be no, right? Like, so instead of saying, <laughs> would you like some red bell pepper? You say, would you like red bell pepper or green bell pepper for snack? And again, that's kind of employing that choice strategy that can work really well with toddlers. That's, that's great. Um, so I guess that kind of brings us on to sort of um, when babies are joining in in this sort of participation of flavour exploration. And there are some babies who, you know, they want that choice, and, but some babies are super duper independent and it can be messy and they can get really frustrated by that. 
how do you support that? Um, you mean in terms the of them getting that? their hands messy and not wanting to touch yeah, it and all hands, of that? Face, like just yeah. everything going everywhere. <laughs> and I know for a lot of parents, that kind of yeah. that causes a bit of anxiety, doesn't it? When there's just sort of that, that yeah. level of mess. Yogurt and, and, and the hair parents... and between the toes and all of that. Yes, for sure. exactly. Needing a shower, so, that kind of. For sure. So I I, kind of have two thoughts here and they, they both are valid and, and they both need to have space. And and one is that first finger food, if done well, uh, really shouldn't be as messy as people make it out to be. The things that are messy are like yogurt and oatmeal and actually things that might be spoon fed right? Actually, the pouches were the messiest things for us because the babies would squeeze them and they would go everywhere. Um, But when you think about really resistive finger food, the kind of foods we're talking about that really advance the oral motor skills and, you know, trigger the chew reflex, we're talking about things like corn on the cob. If you want 15 minutes to yourself at dinner and no mess to clean up, serve corn on the cob. Like corn on the cob (laughs) and a chicken drumstick (laughs) is probably the cleanest meal you're ever going to have. Um, But uh, so there's a place for thinking about foods that advance oral motor skills and advance learning to eat and becoming a safe eater that are also really clean, you know, relatively speaking, right? Um, Now, in terms of the mess part, look, we, we also know that if babies never have the opportunity to touch the yogurt or to kind of finger paint with the puree or whatever it is that you're serving, that eventually... Um, they may kind of develop a sensory aversion to those kinds of textures. That said, you can achieve that exposure in other ways. So for example, do some finger painting during art class. Make sure your baby touches sand and dirt and water. Water play is actually one of the things you can do. If you're noticing your child won't touch their food Uh, doesn't really like to be in the bath, doesn't like to be at the beach, is kind of irritated when they're on grass or things like that, then you've probably got a real sensory um, uh, issue, a sensory processing issue that you may need to get support with and some therapy with. But the percentage of kids that applies to is fairly small. So like I said, I think there are foods that are clean that you can pick and look, choose those foods on nights when you're alone, when you have no help with cleanup, you know, your partner might be out or you're just, you know, running off to daycare that morning, whatever it is, like make those plates strategically, save the yogurt, the chia seeds, all the messy stuff for when, you know, you might have some family around and a little extra help at the table to clean up. But it, you know, we see a lot of, you know, mess is really important on Instagram and, you know, let your child get messy. And I think it's almost performative at this point. Like here's my child with spaghetti sauce all over their hair and all of this. And, you know, isn't that so funny and cool. And is the child getting something from that experience? Yes. There's a, there's a value in letting them have that tactile experience with the food and that sensory experience. They're learning about the consistency of food, how it breaks down in their hand when they squish it. There are values in that, and they're going to likely be less sensitive when they get messy older and maybe not have a tantrum when, when yogurt touches their hand, right? But it doesn't have to be all or nothing. And I think that's what I wanted to say here is that, you know, do some messy foods and some sensory type experience with food. 
to help prevent picky eating when you have the support and the time and the inclination to clean it up and deal with the fallout. <laughs> and, yeah. you know, for all, for all the other meals, pick those, pick those finger foods strategically. And the beauty is that those cleaner foods are often the ones that actually help your child become a better eater and a safer eater um, at the same time. Fantastic. Um, could, could you just go through um, the sort of the type of reactions babies have when they discover new flavours um, and how we as parents should interpret those? Because sometimes, you know, if they pull a yuck face, is that right? Don't ever try that again. I think I know what you're going to say, but could you just sort of go through sort of like yeah, typical sure. reactions to sure. new foods and, and what we should yeah. do? Parents often misinterpret babies and toddler reactions to food. Um, or, you know, a really great example, we have a video that I'm going to post soon about a child uh, showing a child trying sauerkraut for the first time. And sauerkraut is actually a really fantastic food for babies because it has pre uh, prebiotics. So it can help the gut um, kind of flourish more at those early, early stages. But um, the first bite, he was, you know, kind of freaking out, actually. It was crying and really like uh, uh, shaking it off his fingers and almost in a tantrum, like really dysregulated state. And the mom didn't do anything. She didn't rush in and take the tray away and wipe the fingers down. Oh, I'm so, so sorry. Nope. She just kind of gave him some space. And a minute later in the video, he goes back and he goes back and he goes back and finishes the whole thing and starts to say, mm, and is like really enjoying it. So we have to remember that babies are experiencing, babies and a lot of toddlers are experiencing flavors they have never had in their mouth before. When you taste lemon for the first time, of course you're going to kind of get scrunched up and you know have this reaction to it. But lemon in certain preparations is a beautiful thing and really enhances flavor, right? So I think what we wanna do is make sure we give babies the space to have those reactions without first assuming that it's because they don't like it. It's just a strong sensory experience for them. They haven't necessarily decided like or dislike at that point. Um, and to make sure that we try these foods a number of times so that the baby can decide for themselves and it's not this like automatic judgment from the parent that the child doesn't like it because they cried or, you know, there's so many things going on too. Like you're teething, you could be sick, you could hit a gum the wrong way and it's all, you know, it could be very sensitive. So I think the best thing you can do is to offer a wide variety of food, give your child some space to have that reaction without interfering so much or leaping in to save them from that sensory experience that they're having. But what you're going to see is you're going to see wiggles and eye closures to more acidic foods. Tasting vinegar for the first time is going to do that. Lemon, lime, that kind of thing. Grapefruit. Um, when we're talking about uh, some of the more spicy food, and you can introduce spicy food to your babies, I would start slowly and kind of work your way up. You don't need to hold off on it. Um, you know, most babies, if they experience too much cayenne pepper, for example, will have a very strong visceral reaction and start crying. With something like that, we want to actually take that kind of seriously because cayenne pepper or ghost pepper can really cause pain in the mouth. It is a physical pain that we would experience and that they, you know, we don't want our kids assuming that 
all beans are spicy and to never eat beans again, right? So you kind of want to introduce hot spices in a very particular way. One of the ways we love introducing cayenne pepper actually is um, on like a mango pit or something that's kind of sweet and offsets that that heat and just to really finely dust it. But to set it down on the table and say, this is spicy. Mom's going to try it. Watch. Ooh, spicy, spicy spicy. So they learn what that word is and what that experience is and don't just assume that every food they're served from now on is going to taste that way because they they could actually make that assumption. I think that is a really important point actually about um, about the about the association if they have a bad experience with one flavor and the food looks similar it's having the disassociation yeah, I think that's a really important thing that I don't think I'd have necessarily have thought of. But yeah, so like you don't want to introduce you don't want to introduce beans for the first time, you know, via a curry, you know, because they might just think, okay, all beans are super hot and spicy or this particular flavor. So we try to introduce kind of the naked food first, so they know, okay, beans taste this way. This this color bean tastes this way, and I know that I like it. And then really intentionally introduce the. Um, the, the hot spice or whatever that powerful flavor is that you want to want to do. Yeah, amazing. Um, so this is our very last question. Um, and so what is your top tip to make mealtime adventures more fun for both parents and babies? And we ask this to all our guests, so we'd love to hear what your top tips are on this one. Our feeding therapists say to channel a dinner party vibe. And I love that because it includes you. And it's not just, okay, we're just focusing on what I should be doing for baby. When we work with really picky, you know, severe picky eating in families or mothers who have extreme anxiety around choking to the point where it's preventing them from introducing uh, certain foods or flavors, we really tell everyone to channel the dinner party vibe. What does that mean? Cheers your glasses, enjoy your own food, dim the lights, put some music on, make it an experience that's enjoyable for everyone at the table. Have conversation, have conversation your baby will be interested in, which is gonna sound something like this. (gasps) Wow, look at the window, the sky is blue, (laughs) right? Like (laughs) kind of get to their level and have dinner party conversation that would engage them. The goal with that, aside from making sure you are having a good time, which is a really important factor in this, and it's not often looked at, but babies pick up on how you're feeling at the table. Um, We really want to make sure that babies associate the table and food with connecting with you. One of the things we see um, with babies who are having problems with eating is that they've never been brought to the table. They've only been sort of in the corner, in the high chair, while mom's doing the dishes or whatever. And eating has become for them an experience of being separated from the parent. You know, oh, okay, you go in your high chair over there, away where you can make your mess on your splat mat, but it's away and it's over there. And I'm gonna go do these things while you're contained, right? That's not the end of the world if you do it occasionally, but if you notice, and it's not the end of the world if your baby's eating well, right? So if baby's eating well, by all means, do what you need to do to get through this pandemic. But I will (laughs) say that it is very common 
when we see kids who are not eating, that that's actually at the root of the problem. Baby has developed an association that when food comes, I go away from my parents. And so we want to create a togetherness. We want to have them be able to see you eating and to model how that works. Um, and really for everyone to experience some joy together in that, then you're going to have a child who wants to come back to the table. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And it, it does, it sounds so sensible when you say it, but I think it's probably one of those things that you might not necessarily think about if you're actually doing that inadvertently. Yeah, exactly. Um, we, we asked um, our audience, uh, Jenny, some if they could put some questions to you. So would you mind sure. if we quickly ask you some quick five of course, questions? Of course, yeah. Okay, so this is the first question. Um, I want to get flavour and food volume into my baby. Is using a spoon cheating? Mm. No, it's not. But there's a way that you can offer food on a spoon that gives baby control of how much is going in their mouth and when. So when you preload the spoon, you know, you scoop some up on the spoon and go toward baby's mouth, I want you to stop about two or three inches away from baby's mouth. Wait. Wait until baby comes to reach for that spoon and to bring it into their own mouth. That little gesture of, I trust you, you can hold the spoon. By the way, you should let go. <laughs> is enormous <laughs> in preventing picky eating. So that's called responsive spoon feeding. It's basically, you know, the parent is preloading the spoon and handing it over to baby. Yes, some is going to fall off the spoon and yes, some is going to fling on the wall behind you, but it's really important. It's actually really easy to overfeed a baby if the parent is uh, controlling the spoon feeding. Wow, that's a, that's a brilliant answer. Um, Okay, so the next question is, my baby prefers sweet flavors. Is this okay? No, it's completely okay. It's to there's, there's nothing wrong with it, and it's totally normal. Babies have an innate uh, preference for sweet foods. Breast milk is sweet, um, and there's a, you know, a fair amount of, sort of natural sugars in, in a lot of foods that are delicious, and babies often prefer fruits over, over other foods. This is completely normal. Learning to appreciate bitter flavors, so like the broccoli rub or you know, a bitter green, um, as well as, you know, more of the umami kind of flavor profile or very savory foods, including salt, uh, salty foods, is an acquired thing. It's something that you actually need to learn. It's not an innate preference that most humans have. So if we want our children to... Um, we want to avoid kind of raising a sugar obsessed kid and we want our kids to choose the you know the broccoli or to choose the vegetables and choose to enjoy some of the more savory foods we need to expose them to those often what we often see is that when fruits or the sweet food is served at the same time on the plate as everything else that they steal the show right so the the child will only eat the mango and just keeps going back for mango ignores all the other foods on the plate and then asks for more mango um, and just kind of gorging themselves on the one fruit if that's happening to you just take mango off the menu serve mango at snack time on its own when it's not in competition with other proteins or vegetables so that you're giving you know giving broccoli its chance <laughs> at the table <laughs> I, yeah i think it's it's really important but it can be that easy actually it's sort of saving the sweeter foods for snack we actually do that with dessert 
in my home. So we rarely have dessert after dinner because, you know, the older your child gets, the more they kind of game the system. They're, you know, oh, I don't need to eat this because ice cream's coming later. So I'm just going to save up, you know, save up for that. Um, but if your pattern is, is that there's never a dessert after dinner or it's more of a random thing and there's not like a pattern to it, then you can actually shift your sweets to afternoon snack or even morning snack and kind of get them out of the way and not have them be in competition with the, the vegetables and the proteins and everything else that you want to see your child eating. Yeah, that's. I think that's a really clever tactic actually I think I might deploy that in my house um, and then we had one question um, from a, a mum who's just started um, introducing she's just beginning her weaning journey any ideas of foods that stick to a spoon easily so that it doesn't get <laughs> yes. flung over the wall <laughs> yes yes I know responsive spoon feeding sounds all well and good until it ends up on the wall. Um, yes, there. So basically, what you want to think of are foods that act like hummus, because that is truly the perfect consistency for responsive spoon feeding, where you're letting go of the spoon and, and having baby control that. So. Greek yogurt, as opposed to just regular yogurt, is going to have a little more cling and stick to it. Um, beans that are pureed or um, blended with like some olive oil or something like that. Um, basically, you're creating like a bean hummus, right? Uh, stick to the spoon really well. Um, let's see, what other foods cling to the spoon so well? I think a lot of times I, you just want to I like the idea of bean hummus. I think binder. I might mashed potatoes will cling really well oatmeal that you cook a little bit longer so it's a little bit more stiff actually does that as well with the savory foods if you add sort of a binder like a, a greek yogurt or even a cheese or something that helps the rice kind of stick together or the quinoa to kind of clump together um that will help stick to spoons as well and it's not it's not a choking hazard so oh Thank you. That they, they are all the questions, Jenny. I think you've answered those superbly. I think I'm definitely going to figure out how to make bean hummus because it sounds really, really delicious. <laughs> Super um, nutritious. Jenny, thank you. <laughs> thank you so much for you've given us such an awful lot of time and so so much information. Um, thank you. Um, as a thank you, we will be sending you our Bibidoo exclusive. Wonder is for the curious mug and notebook, which we hope you will get many a hot drink from and inspires you to continue being curious and feeding your own curiosity as well as those around you. Um, and I just wanted to say congratulations on Solid Starts and, and wishing you every success um, for the future with Solid Starts and, and everything else that you're doing. Um, and it seems to me that you have helped so many families um, already, and I'm sure you're going to help so many more along the way. And thank you so much for just giving up a little bit of time. I know how busy you are to chat with us today. Thank you, Rachel. It's been a pleasure. Good luck. Oh, thank you. Um, for our listeners, um, if you have enjoyed today's uh, podcast, which I'm sure you have, please check out and subscribe to our channel to keep up to date with our latest episodes. And if you'd like to watch the full video podcast, head over to our website. And if you'd like uh, to listen to it on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, we are on there as well. And if you have any topics that you'd like us to discuss into the future, we'd love to hear from you. And please let us know what you think. Thank you for listening and feeding your own curiosity. Baby do, baby do. <laughs>